0: Hmm.
1: welcome to the moose room everybody today it's it's kind of good and bad you know bradley is gone he's on vacation but Ah, good i know but (laughs) the good news is that we immediately replaced him and it's okay uh one of my old friends dr aaron royster is here she is here uh, to help us kind of fill Bradley's shoes today, help us talk through our topic today. And she has brought a colleague and a friend. Pam Ruig is here today to talk about mastitis. And specifically, we're gonna, we're gonna focus down. Mastitis is a big, big, big topic. And Emily is super excited to talk about all things mastitis. Yeah. But uh, we're gonna focus down today. So thank you, Aaron and Pam for being here today.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm really. This is Aaron. I'm really thrilled to be here, and I'm super thrilled that Pam agreed to come and talk to us about mastitis because obviously, anybody who's ever even thought about mastitis knows who Pam is. Um, and so, we're. I'm just so excited to talk about um, some of your recent research and to hear your hear your thoughts on mastitis and specifically mastitis treatment
3: well thanks aaron and emily and joe it's really good to be here and it's not very hard to lure me into a conversation about my favorite topic
1: well and we're continuing and i don't think i've told emily this uh uh, we're continuing our trend and and our trend is that we really only find guests that are either former extension or basically do exactly uh what extension does just in a different role so pam used to be with the university of minnesota wisconsin extension uh, tell me a little bit about your time there right
3: well first of all I got to correct you I was never with the University of Minnesota Wisconsin and okay. as a, um, a former Badger um, I can't let that slip by I was at the University of Wisconsin Madison for 20 years you really screwed that one up
1: Joe. Wow. <laughs> what did I say
3: You said University of Minnesota, Madison. Yeah. Well, no, you said
0: University of Minnesota, Wisconsin. Yeah.
1: Where did that come from? I was like, I know you were at Extension.
3: I knew you were
1: were at Extension. Well, that's just a hot mess for an intro. A mess
0: that is heated. I do want to share really quickly that, yes. Anybody who, you know, thinks about mastitis, has read the word mastitis, knows who Pam is. And so I got on, uh, today we record on Zoom, and for just a little bit, it was just me and Pam. And I was like, oh my God, I was like starstruck uh, when I first (laughs) got on. uh, Because yes, I have done mastitis work uh, in in my college days and and in my first seven years with extension. And so it's like, I have used a lot of Pam stuff. And so... Definitely, definitely a little starstruck having a fangirl moment, but I'm excited.
3: Okay, I got to comment on that, Emily, because recently I was talking to my sons who are in their 20s, and I was kind of bragging a little about myself. I said, you know, I'm a mastitis celebrity. And my older son, who's a journalist in California, said, well, big deal. What are there, about 100 people who care? So it's always good to have kids. Yeah, I mean, come on. There's at least 200. Yeah, come that was my answer, Aaron? I said, well, <laughs> our National mastitis Council meeting has about 400 people every year. There.
1: <laughs> That's more than 100. That's more than 100. All right, oh as as we do, there's two questions we ask every guest. Uh, so Emily, take it away.
0: Your first question for both of you, so you're each going to answer this. What is your Favorite breed of beef cattle. Pam, I'm gonna have you go first.
3: Um probably, oh man, I gotta think on beef cattle. Um, belted galloways. (gasps) That's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. They're the right color.
1: color. Wow. I love it. And Aaron, that was gonna be your answer as well.
3: Totally.
1: Absolutely. Oh Oh my gosh. That is Belted well,
0: Galloway just comes surging in. I, I love it. You
1: know, that's the that's the you are both the first people to to choose that. Um, and <laughs> Emily's happy because of her answer on the dairy side for sure, uh, and the similarities there. So uh, with that, I mean we got Herefords at six, Black Angus at four, Black Baldy at two, Belted Galloway now at two, Brahman <laughs> yeah. at one, Stabilizer one, Gelbvie one, Scottish Highlander one, Kyonina one, Charlet one, and Simmental one.
0: So question two is what is your favorite breed of dairy cattle? Oh, I'm gonna have Aaron go first on okay. this. Okay. Oh. So you can steal Pam's answer now, Erin.
2: Okay, well we'll see. I don't know. So <laughs> the, the thing about the the belted galloways is if you don't have to work with beef cattle or know anything about them, I feel like they're an obvious choice, right? Mm-hmm. They're super cute to look at. Um, so depending on how you're supposed to answer this question, I think I would have a different answers. So if you ask me what kind of dairy cow I really like working with, I'm going to pick a Jersey. I really like working with Jerseys. Come on,
0: but if okay, you but we're just asking like a general favorite.
2: But so if you ask me what kind of dairy cow I would like to look at, I'm going with the Randall linebacker. They're so cool to look at.
1: Uh, you have to, which just pick one. Please pick the right one.
2: Fine, Joe. I'll pick Jersey for you. Yes.
1: yes. <laughs> Yes, that's what we wanted. That's what Bradley I wanted. I am shaking as well. my
3: head in disbelief. I love
1: it. I had a little bit of coercion, thank you. All right, Pam, go for it.
3: I am officially neutral on this subject and will not comment. It could wow. kind of destroy my credibility.
1: <laughs> okay. If you're if you're refusing to answer for real. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll allow it. But that does tie up Holstein's and Jerseys at seven, which is which is wonderful to see Jerseys coming back into the lead there. Brown Swiss at four, Dutch Belted at two, Normandy at one. Oh, and my bad, Belliard's at two, so they are above Normandy here. And we have one neutral vote.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. So now that I have probably recovered from my dad brain moments earlier, um, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get into the topics today really, I think the place to start is we really got to lay the foundation for where we're going today and what we're talking about. And the big thing is that today we're talking about clinical mastitis. And so we're not talking about subclinical mastitis. We're not talking about surveillance testing too much. We might get into it just a tiny bit. So that's really what we need to know. We're talking about mild to moderate clinical mastitis. So we're not talking about really severe cases or any of those extremes. And that's, that's really where the most recent research has had some changes and the recommendations have, have potentially changed. And there's even really, really recent research that Pam has done uh, that I'm excited to talk about. I, I was uh, reading the abstract yesterday and completely amazed at, at some of the results. So we'll get into that soon. We, we've all heard about culture and making sure that A lot of, you know, Emily and I have talked about it a lot, that we prefer that people culture and find out what actual pathogen is the problem in a case of mastitis. So Aaron, Pam, walk me through why actually getting a microbiological diagnosis is the way to go.
3: You know, back when I started as a baby veterinarian, we were taught that mastitis was caused by like three bacteria. Streptococcus agalactia, which you treated and they responded. Staphylococcus aureus, which um, you didn't treat, you called them. And E. coli, they died. Okay, that's what we were taught back when I was a baby veterinarian. And the therapeutic principles that evolved for mastitis, all the drugs, all of the treatment protocols that everyone learned coming up were based in that foundation that there were three pathogens basically causing most mastitis. And what has happened across the course of my career is we have almost fully eradicated Streptococcus agalactia. It's a very rare pathogen today in modern dairy farms. Staphylococcus aureus is massively controlled on most farms through prevention. And while there are herds and it's around on most farms, you can find a few cases we don't typically recommend treatment as a primary strategy. And then we've had a huge shift overall in the types of bugs that cause mastitis. So I would say the big difference today on why we need to culture is because we're dealing with a disease that's caused by a big variety of opportunistic pathogens that all present with the same clinical science. So what we see when we see a case of mastitis is inflammation as a result of an infection. But we don't know if the infection is active. We don't know if the cow's immune system has already successfully um, eliminated most of the colonies. And we don't know if, even if there's an active infection at that time, if um, it will respond to an antimicrobial or if you even need an antimicrobial in order to affect bacteriological cure, so we're dealing with a bacterial disease that's caused by a lot of different bugs. So, we, in order to effectively manage it, we have to know what those bugs are.
1: I hear over and over again when I was in practice okay, well, I can tell by the appearance of the milk whether it's a coliform or not, or what, what type, you know, basically the base, basic bacteria that I'm dealing with. <laughs> how, how do you feel about that?
3: You absolutely can't. You know, you absolutely can't. And it's interesting as well. I'm a huge advocate of on-farm culture. We started doing it in 2000. So, you know, it's 21 years that that we've been working with it. And you can't even use on-farm culture to really speciate most bacteria. So, um, no, you can't look at the milk. You can't guess. Not going to tell you.
1: Uh, Erin, anything to add on this topic right now?
2: What Pam said is right. I I mean, the whole reason why we advocate for culturing is to help people make better decisions and and ideally have better outcomes. So I would say the outcomes in the cow are just part of that making better decisions. There's other factors that go into that, like practicing good antibiotic stewardship, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, culturing, good idea.
1: Perfect it's become more accessible now too, right? Especially the on-farm cultures. Uh, and Pam said, you know, it's it's been around for a long time. People have been using it for a long time. It's not that expensive to get into in my mind, as far as, as what you need to get started. What What are the big barriers on why people are not culturing on-farm?
2: The herd size and the rate of clinical mastitis is probably the big one. I think mm-hmm. for smaller dairies that might only have like a case or two at a time, um, or a case or two per week, or a case or two for every couple weeks, it's not really worth their time and investment to get mm-hmm. into it. Um, and then I think the other big one that I have seen is just sort of like the skill set and mindset of the dairy. If it's just not something that they're, that they're interested in, that they don't have someone on the dairy who can really take it and be really good at it and kind of make it their thing, it's not going to work out I mean, I say that because we have some small dairies that do it even for a few cases Mm -hmm. and they really love it and get a lot out of it. And it's because it's their thing. Like they have the interest and the skill set to do it. So I think you have to have both the number of cases to make it worthwhile and, or at least like someone who's really into it, that can do it well on the dairy.
3: Yeah. I'll just add one more thing. I I agree a hundred percent, Erin, with, with your comments on that. But I'll add one more thing. You've got to have somebody in the milking parlor who can take clean samples and um, and the time. So if you've got a milking parlor where they can't get all the cows milked every day and you want the guys in the milking parlor to take the samples, you might as well wait until you can figure out some way to get all your cows milked um, every day. Because if you can't collect an absolutely aseptic milk sample, you're going to fail at this little project. That is a super important point.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the first step and it can all go wrong right away. And here's, here's my plug. And I know Emily is shaking her head. Uh, the plug is for veterinarians and I do this all the time. And it's my one time now that uh, there's more veterinarians on the call uh, than not. It feels good. I'm not outnumbered by, by Brad and Emily. And With these small herds, there's a lot of clinics that can do some of this Mm culturing for you and and have trained personnel, technicians. It's wonderful to see some of the clinics pick that up because I saw a lot of value in it in practice and farmers really appreciate it. So just a complete blanket plug for veterinarians being involved in this process as well and definitely getting your technicians involved. And I know that's that's something that Pam has said in the past. You know, there's a really nice spot for veterinary technicians in this process as well. Okay, let's let's move on so we can continue with this conversation about about mastitis and we've talked about why you should culture those kind of things, especially when it comes to antibiotic use judiciously and then. One of the things that we've kind of danced around a little bit is case selection and how there are cows that you know when it comes to treating mastitis they're just not not good candidates for that option so. Who are those cows, Pam? Who is not a great idea? Who is not, not someone that we should really s- spend the time and money on?
3: You know, uh, I, that's a great point to bring up, Joe. And I think the important thing to bring up on this one is this is something you can do, even if you're not going to do on-farm culture, is review the history of the cow before you decide to give her an antibiotic. So you don't need any special, special tools to do this. You just need a decision that you're going to do that. So the thing that you want to select when you're looking at a cow that has a non-severe case of mastitis is you want to try to avoid cows that are long-term chronic cows um, that have been treated previously with antibiotics and have recurred. And the reason for that is, is kind of um, encapsulated by that famous Einstein quote that the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Okay, that's exactly what we're doing when we continue to give antibiotics to a quarter or even a different quarter of a cow that has been treated multiple times. So cows that have had two or more previous cases of mastitis and present with another one, um, you want to think hard about uh, use of antibiotics in that and probably discourage it. Cows that are affected with chronic, uh, long-term chronic high somatic cell counts, especially cows that maintain high somatic cell counts across multiple lactations. Those cows probably have bacteria, um, have a type of mastitis caused by bacteria that infiltrate deeply into the mammary gland tissue. And those are often very non-responsive to antibiotics. And so your probability of having a successful outcome is really low. Cows that have been affected with pathogens which are known to be non-responsive, mycoplasma, prototheca, pseudomonas. If they've been affected with those, your odds of having a successful outcome are pretty low. So, you know, you really need to look at the characteristics of the cow. And then the other thing is, if you've got a cow who's in late lactation and has a bunch of other bad things going for her, don't waste the antibiotics on her. Make, it, you know, make the, the right decision to give her a new career. You know, being a beef cow is a shorter career, but it's not a bad career. It still fulfills an important societal need. It is still
0: a delicious career. (laughs) Exactly. You were kind of getting at this, Pam, but I'm curious to know, are there other kind of more nuanced considerations, just thinking about, you know, days in milk or, you know, different things with that, or if they're open or bread or... You know, other other little things to look at, you know, especially for those farms that are maybe doing a good job but really trying to hone in on just those small things to to save the money or to figure out how to use their antibiotics.
3: I don't normally I don't have data where I would make these and milk based decisions about antimicrobial usage uh, for non-severe cases of clinical mastitis. I would say that, cows very early in lactation. So when we make a decision not to use an antibiotic, what you're betting is that the cow's immune response is going to be sufficient to eliminate that bacteria, achieve bacteriological clearance on its own. And so kind of the guiding philosophy that you need to think about is, do I believe that cow has the ability to mount an effective immune response? And so, you know, if you've got a cow two days in milk that um, just had twins, has a body condition score of two and a half, and is projected to produce thirty-eight thousand pounds of milk, okay, um, and maybe has a retained placenta, maybe she's presenting with a non-severe case, but maybe that's and maybe let's add another factor there. Let's say it's ninety degrees out, okay. So in those instances, I personally, regardless of what a culture is going to say, probably not going to be as comfortable making a decision not to use an antibiotic in a cow like that, because I don't think that the speed and magnitude of her immune response will be the same as maybe that same cow three months from now that um, is in positive energy balance, probably been bred once. You know, is kind of starting to decline in milk yield, et cetera. And maybe the weather's cooler. So, I mean, I think overwhelmingly, I, I, you know, apart from any rules, you want to be making clinical judgments about the immune capacity of those cows. There's there's sort of two
2: different things that we're talking about here. One is we started talking about um, cows that shouldn't even be considered eligible Right for treatment because they are, they have chronic clinical mastitis, they have chronically high somatic cell count, they have non-responsive pathogens, or they're a cow that rather than continue to get antimicrobial therapy, they need to have a career change and become a beef cow because of some some set of farm-specific criteria mm-hmm. for culling. Um, and I think that might be what you were asking about, Emily, more like at, at what point do we decide not to, to, not to continue treating cows because of some other factors, like she's old, she's not pregnant, she's lame, what have you. I think those criteria are sort of like, we can come up with some general good culling criteria, but they're always going to be a little bit farm specific, depending Mm -hmm. on bird capacity and things like that. The other criteria that you started talking about, Pam, was when you're um, making the treat or no treat decision, probably based on a a pathogen result. Mm -hmm. That's when you want to if we're talking about a no treatment decision, evaluate sort of the immune status, the ability to respond to that infection on her own. And I think that that is a, a more nuanced approach. Because We mm-hmm. talk a lot about the treat, no treat, you know, we're not going to treat no growths. We're not going to treat gram negatives. We'll talk more about this, I'm sure. But that's another important factor is looking at the cow and saying, do I have reason to suspect that even though she's infected with a, an E. coli, which has a high spontaneous cure rate? she might not actually be able to mount an effective immune response right now because she's immune suppressed for heat stress. She just calved, she had twins, yeah. like all these other things. that That is a important component of that decision-making on an individual cow level.
3: I think that's great clarification, Erin, because like I was going off on all sorts of tangents. <laughs> <laughs> Two brains
2: are always better than one.
1: I really like how you said that, Pam, with betting on the cow's immune system, because I feel like, I've thought that way in the past, but never recognized it Mm that, you know, am I, am I willing to put money that this cow is going to be able to make it without additional support, uh, in some way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you go down that decision tree and it's like, well, I am not betting on her to make it without supportive care. So I Mm -hmm. need to get her some fluids and all these other things. And you kind of work through all the different things you can do. And, and sometimes you do end up with antibiotics as something you need to do for this cow. So I, I really like how you put that, that's perfect. We've been talking a lot about using culture and, and pathogen-based treatment. So let's step back just a second and talk about, okay, well, if I absolutely decide I'm not doing that, I don't wanna do that at all, I'm not gonna use culture culture to guide my treatment decisions and I'm just going to treat everyone. What, what are kind of the best practices if that's where we're at on, on a certain dairy or that's the decision that's made?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really practical question because that's the reality on plenty of farms, okay? They don't have the manpower, they don't have the capacity, they're not big enough, whatever, and and they don't want to make a wrong decision. So we've looked at that quite a bit. And the reality is what you have to think about is what percentage, if you had 100 cases, for example, of mastitis, what percentage of those probably really need the antibiotic therapy in order to clear the bacteria, which is what you're trying to achieve with an antibiotic. And on a typical farm, probably there's somewhere, and these numbers evolve, you know, somewhere around 30 to 40% maximum of those cases that are presenting non-severe that may benefit from antibiotic therapy. Okay, this is an average farm that doesn't have, you know, an outbreak of a particular pathogen. So you got a mix of pathogens, and of those thirty percent to forty percent, you know, some of those aren't going to be eligible because they're chronic or whatever these criteria we talked about earlier. So you want to devise your treatment strategy, your overall treatment strategy, to benefit them without an economic, con- negative economic consequence for your farm or an overuse of antibiotics. And the best strategy that we found based on economic analysis, decision tree analysis and others is to use a narrow spectrum gram positive drug for the labeled duration on the product. And I don't think there's any reason to differentiate between products Okay, the spectrum of activity is virtually identical for most of the intramemory products, and what you want to do is is uh, select the drug that that you're comfortable with, and use the shortest duration on the label. So. If there is like an audio
2: version of bolding something, Joe, can you do that in the final, like maybe make that like a big echoey boom when she says that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe I could do that. Cause yeah, I mean, that, that is really key. And I, I think that, that, you know, it is the reality in, in the field there are farms that just for whatever reason, lifestyle, other things going on, manpower, labor, everything it's just a reality. And so it's really nice to see like, okay, there's a very clear recommendation.
3: Mm-hmm. Very
1: clear recommendation out there. And, and it, I'm glad that you said it. And there's no, there's no, there's no ifs or buts or anything. But it's very clear. Just, you know, narrow spectrum, gram positive coverage on label duration. Don't differentiate between products. Period. That's it. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> I, I, I can't get any clearer than that.
0: Podcast is done. It's
2: done.
1: over. Okay. Shut it down. Got it.
2: But now that we've made that so simple, yeah. can we now make it more complicated? Sure. So I think the biggest issue that I have seen with this, you know, why do people mess with this and I know you're going to be excited that I'm asking about this, uh, is the, okay. So I, the short duration therapy, we're talking about two or three treatments over, you know, a day to three days. Mm-hmm. Um, the cow's not normal at the end of treatment. Right. So
3: shouldn't I keep treating her? That is the scariest part of a short duration treatment. And I can actually remember the first time that um, it, this was actually Alfonso Lago's work when we went to farms and convinced people to use really short duration treatment with Sandra Godden's work and all. And the manager of the farm that I was enrolling, the first farm that we enrolled said, okay, I'm willing to do this. But um, you know the, the the selective treatment using on-farm culture. But I'm really worried about the short duration treatment. Are you sure that the label treatment duration is going to be fine? And I was like, Oh, absolutely, I'm sure. And as I left the farm that day, I really respected this farm manager. I was just sweating bullets. Okay, I was just sweating bullets myself because while I believed it, I still wasn't confident enough. And so I really appreciate that feeling because I felt it. And we, since that time, that that study was a long time ago. And since that time, we have collected a lot of data on duration of abnormal milk. And duration of abnormal milk is um, basically how long does inflammation last in response to bacterial infection? And it lasts from three to about six days. The average is four to five. That is with or without treatment, With or without bacteriologic cure, with or without pathogen, irrespective of pathogen. So, the scary thing with that short duration treatment is for most cases, you're going to stop your antimicrobial while the milk is still abnormal and you're just going to wait out the milk withhold period. But the data we have shows you don't need to be scared about that. The milk's going to go back to normal in 85% of those cases, no later than seven days, regardless of treatment, but in most of them, somewhere between day four to six.
2: And we're talking lots of data now, multiple studies, multiple herds, multiple states, lots of cows. We pretty much know now that cows with clinical mastitis have abnormal milk for about four to six days, no matter what you do.
3: And that is why a five-day treatment feels so good, okay, because when you give five days of treatment on your last treatment, you're like, oh, look, it works so great, because the vast majority of cases the milk is normal, but those things aren't related. In fact, almost all data shows when you have a non-treated control group, you have about maybe half a day longer abnormal milk in the treated group. <laughs> the ones that get intramammary treatment because just putting something in the udder stimulates some inflammation. So I can I can kind of
2: relate to that, that like sort of squeamish feeling when someone asks, like pins you down on something and it's something that you believe, but you're just, you don't have really data that mm-hmm. make you like, I can for sure say this 100%. So mine is that students would always ask me, okay, so if we know that clinical signs last four to six days, how long should we wait to reevaluate that cow and decide mm-hmm. whether or not she needs something different? And I would always say like total shooting from the hip, like, I think I would wait like eight to 10 days, at least eight to 10 days. But you know, it's, and I, but then I would say, but you know, it maybe depends on the risk tolerance level of the producer and how long they can stand, blah, blah, blah. But I noticed in uh, one of your recent papers, in your discussion, you say 10 days, wait 10 days.
3: Yeah, wait 10 days. And that's because we monitored in our last two trials, three trials, we've monitored abnormal milk for 10 days. And that's the longest we've gone. That's why I'm saying 10 days. It's also because I just, I recently did this review article. You know, I reviewed all the clinical mastitis trials for the last 20 years that I could find in English language papers. It's published in Frontiers. It's open access. anybody can get a hold of it. There's only 26 clinical trials, and in um, that, and of those 26, only six have a negative control group. And I did three of those. You know, the data in there on days of abnormal milk, c- while it's hard to parse out. Um, because people define things differently is really consistent with that eight to 10 days or so, the clinical cure outcomes, et cetera. So I think you can easily wait eight to 10 days. The other issue is what are you going to do? Okay. I mean, really, what are you going to do? Um, we don't have any magic bullet cures to make the out go back to normal. And we don't have any evidence the changing antimicrobial treatments is gonna speed that up.
2: Kind of back to your earlier point, like there's not really a reason to differentiate tubes. They they pretty much all have a similar spectrum of activity against gram positives. Right. No magic bullet. No magic bullet.
1: You know, I think sometimes in a beef mine, sometimes in a dairy mine, for me, this is super similar to a feedlot when you treat yeah. and your poll criteria and you have a no treat window. You know, after an animal gets treated, you have this period of days that you say, we're not treating again. It doesn't really matter because we've done everything we can. And that's the same kind of thing we're doing here. You know, we have treated, there's not really another option. We know the milk's gonna be abnormal anyway till six days. Just wait the eight to 10 days and then reevaluate and see what's going on. When, when would you reculture? Is that something you can do? Is that still at 10 days or are you gonna wait a little longer? How's that work?
3: That, that by the way is a great question, Joe. I don't really know the answer to that or how to use culture in the short run. And and the reason for that is based on the trials we've done, you know, over the last few years, including this gram positive. When you give an antimicrobial, an antibiotic for treatment, you're not sterilizing that gland. What you're doing is reducing the number of colonies that are there. And then the cow's immune system, you're tilting the advantage to the immune system. So the immune system comes in and scavenges and cleans that up. And the speed of that response, the speed of bacteriological clearance is highly, highly dependent on the bacteria. So like for E. coli, you know, in those recent trials, we had spontaneous cure rates and treatment cure rates that were well over 95%. And and that's because E. coli die off really rapidly because they stimulate such a large immune response because of the nature of their um, gram-negative cell wall. So they're dead rapidly, so the cell count drops rapidly. If you culture an E. coli, um, probably on day like six, you're gonna find a lot of culture negatives there because it happens fast. If you, if you culture a strep on day six, you're gonna find streps, okay? Um, because what you get is a much slower decay curve. It takes much longer to achieve bacteriological clearance. And so um, I do not recommend using culture to make a retreatment decision. And I don't know at what point you would, but probably not before 21 days.
1: What I'm hearing is, right? well, we should wait 8 to 10 days to reassess. But if we see abnormal milk again, we can't culture. So then how do you make your treatment decision?
3: Well, if the milk remains abnormal let's say you're out 14 to 21 days, you got abnormal milk, you might want to reculture that, you know, somewhere in that two to three week window, you do a reculture, take a look at, but you go through the same treatment algorithm on that. Okay, so what do we know about this cow? Is this her first treatment or second treatment? Is it the same quarter? You know, on some herds, you get a large level of reinfection. Uh, on herds because you have a lot of infection pressure. This is really true on manure solids, herds that have wet manure solids. Uh, Recurrence rates are high, but it's not necessarily because you didn't cure them. It's because you get a lot of new infections. Uh, 14 to 21 days, you could reculture, see how the cow's doing. You may or may not want to use an antimicrobial. At that point, it would be, I think, an individual case decision at that point. In my experience and in the data that I have looked at, there are no good short-term indicators of response. I mean, you expect amount to go back to normal in five to six days, somewhere three to, six, three to five days, let's say, somewhere in that range. If it stays normal, you're good. What you'd expect next is to have a gradual continued decline in the quarter-level cell count. And of course, nobody monitors quarter-level cell count. We measure monthly cell counts, which are commingled. And the cell count will go down gradually. And that is also pathogen-dependent because cell count is a lagging indicator after bacteriological clearance. So you're going to have a rapid decline in cell count with, with say, E. coli, successful clearance. With streps, it's going to take six weeks. For that cell count to kind of gradually come down because your your die-off on the bacteria take longer. But I think if you're looking at long-term indicators on was our treatment successful, that cell count about six weeks out is probably the best one we've got.
1: And that's a cell count at the cow level. You're talking when you're saying that?
3: Yeah, I think you can look at cell count at the cow level, but you always have to remember if you have only one infected quarter. Um, It's going to be all diluted out by four. Um, so yeah. um, you'd expect it to come down faster at the cow level. We measure quarter level cell counts in our studies just to, so we know what's going on. And that's why I'm fairly confident
1: in the speed. We've kind of, I think, laid the groundwork here, but we really need to get into the specifics of pathogen based treatment. You know, if once we culture and we know what we have, now what, you know, we kind of, Said that there's there's not all that many cows that we know absolutely benefit from antibiotics, and then there's even fewer because there's some that aren't eligible. Let's let's walk through. Okay, I've cultured and I've gotten a result. Okay, wh- when do I treat and when when do I not treat? Which is probably you know just as important.
3: Okay, I'm going to work through it from simplest decision to hardest decision. How about that?
1: What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Joe Armstrong. That's where we had to cut it today. There's too much good information. We're gonna to have to split this one into two episodes. Sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger there, but please come back next week. We will be back with Pam. She'll walk through the whole decision tree on what you need to do once you have a culture result. You guys know how to reach us, themoosroom, at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M, at umn.edu. On Facebook, we're at umnbeef and at umndairy. Twitter at UMN room, and that's plenty of plugs for today. We'll catch you guys next week.